AT&T ThreatTrack is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. Hello, welcome to AT&T Threat Track for December 16th, 2014. This program provides network security highlights, discussion, and countermeasures for cyber threats. Today we're joined by Jim Clausing online. Welcome, Jim. Thanks, good to be here. It's good to have you back. We missed you last week. John Hogelboom. Here I am again. Here I am again. <laughs> and Matt Kaiser, welcome. Uh, glad to have you guys here. And uh, I'm Brian Rexrode, and let's go ahead to our, our next topic here, our first topic, I guess, for the day. And, uh, you know, we don't want to get soaked. It's kind of a snowy season, not really a get soaked right. season. But, uh, John, tell us about the uh, in the cyber world, you can get soaked a little bit, too, I guess. Yeah, so this is a campaign that's um, just kind of coming out this week that people are discussing. It's called the Soak Soak Campaign. And it's named after that, after the domain name, which is soaksoak.ru that is getting redirected to. So this is not some new technique. We've mm -hmm. seen this technique before, but it is kind of a large scale campaign. So it's probably good to make people aware of it. Um, and uh, Securi, they are the first ones to report on this campaign. They did a, a pretty decent blog write up. There's still some emerging information coming out today, kind of as we speak, I was reading up. So they don't have all the details yet, but we can kind of give you the, the high level uh, overview of it. The basic gist is there's a campaign going on where they've identified that there's an exploit vector in the um, Rev Slider plugin for WordPress. Mm. And there's an actor out there who is finding WordPress sites that are, have the Rev Slider plugin installed and mm -hmm. goes and tries to uh, exploit them. So the first thing it does is it goes and uses a local file inclusion uh, vulnerability, which basically means that I can use a PHP script up on the web server to ask me to ask it to give me a file that's also on the web server that I should not have access to. Mm -hmm. So the first thing they grab is the wp-config.php, which gives you the configuration of your WordPress site, which might have like the SQL password and uh, you know other types of passwords and database names for things like that uh, related to the WordPress site. Uh, and then the next thing I do is they leverage a, another vulnerability in the uh, RevSlider plugin to upload a um, uh, another uh, malicious exploit into there, and they'll uh, put the Filesman backdoor, which is a pretty common backdoor. It's a, a web shell, basically. Uh, so, you know, we've talked about other web shells probably in the past, but C99 is another really big one. But Filesman is basically just a web shell. It's in the path there. We have it on the slide here, and this is kind of where it gets deployed. So they can just go to that, and now they've kind of bypassed all of the any kind of password protection or administrative protection. They operate under the effective user ID of uh, whoever's running that HTTP server. Right. So then they can go through and do whatever they need uh, in terms of administering with the files man because it gives you access to read and write files off of the, the web server. Mm -hmm. um, and they will, uh, um, they're updating a file called swfobject.js, which is part of the WordPress uh, site so that um, it imports that JavaScript as part of its function. And what they're doing is they're modifying it. Um, to redirect to another website. And there's actually some code, they're just doing some analysis today I saw where they're kind of looking through the obfuscated code that's in there. Um, mm -hmm. So they take JavaScript and we've, we've probably shown this before on the show where they'll uh, compress it and pack it into things so it doesn't, it's not very readable unless you unpack it all. Mm -hmm. And um, 
They've noticed that there are specific code branches in that JavaScript for Firefox and for Internet Explorer 11, but they haven't gotten to the details of, well, are they exploiting something specifically there uh, or not yet, but that's probably, that's the guess here. Mm -hmm. So long story short, actors out there finding vulnerable WordPress sites with the RevSlider plugin, infecting them so that when visitors come to the website, they potentially can get infected themselves with right. additional malware. So it's kind of, it enables this drive-by exploit type of thing where if you can hit you know, a large number of these websites, you'll get some people that are browsing those websites, get, they'll get their PCs infected and uh, you know, it's probably, it's gonna be a different malware infection at that point that's pushed out right. of the machine, but okay. Is, uh, that's now, the idea. Do we know that that's what they're doing? We don't just yet. Okay. So they're still kind of evaluating or analyzing what's going on. I didn't see any clear indication of what is being delivered to visitors who visit. Mm -hmm. Uh, other than being re redirected to that soaksoak.ru right. website. Um, and there's another one, too, that they pointed out uh, earlier today, which I, I didn't get into the slide deck, but it's another uh, .ru one. I just can't remember uh, what the actual URL is. Uh, in all, uh, Google has kind of identified um, WordPress sites that are likely to be compromised. Mm -hmm. um, it's pretty easy to determine if it's well, for an outside actor, if you hit the WordPress site, it's pretty easy to see in the JavaScript that comes back that it's been compromised. Right. So Security actually has um, kind of a, a scanner tool that you can go to their website, put in your website's URL, and mm -hmm. it'll go check to see if it looks like okay. you're impacted so they, or not. So they're acting as a proxy for you? The in a way, right yeah. They, you just put your, your, your website domain in there. They'll go visit your website and see if it looks like it's attempting, mm -hmm. you know, if it's got this uh, payload in the response traffic that comes back. Okay. Uh, so Google's, you know, in partnering with Secure and Google, they kind of identified about 11,000 domains, which is a lot of WordPress mm -hmm. domains. Yeah. It's about 100,000 WordPress websites. Uh, that's the guess uh, on the total number that are being actively blacklisted by Google. So when you're on Google, you might see in your search results, you know, this is a reported attack web page or something in the search results. And I think Firefox also integrates with that safe browsing API as well, so they'll just block it um, mm -hmm. if you use Firefox. Uh, but uh, if you have WordPress and you have RevSlider as part of that, I'm not even sure what the RevSlider plugin does. Um, I think it's some kind of like drag and drop widget that you can use with WordPress mm -hmm. um, to kind of help facilitate, you know, make it easier to do your blogging and whatnot. But um, if you have those, uh, you would want to update RevSlider, but you'd also want to get rid of the infection, which could be tricky because um, they're installing multiple backdoors as a part of this. They've also mm -hmm. got a copy of your wp-config.php, so you'd have to change your passwords, potentially. Mm -hmm. um, additionally, they've noticed that if, if you're a user and you have multiple websites, so maybe I have a, you know, I've got my login on some web hosting site, and I have a WordPress site, but maybe I've got a Joomla one for something else that I'm doing, or another one for something else. So via that one WordPress website I have, they can go infect all these other ones as well mm. uh, because they have effective user rights or access to all of the websites that you manage under that one user account. Right, right. Um, if you have, you know, you know, that kind of situation on that yeah, web hosting absolutely. account. So, I mean, this may be a statement of obvious or a question that's, uh, that's relatively obvious. So the 11,000 domains that have been basically blacklisted by Google, these are otherwise perfectly legitimate, you know, you may be used to going there, and the next thing you know, you know, the vulnerability's been identified and by these actors, they've infected it. Now what was legitimate is getting flagged as, right. uh, 
as basically a compromised site. Right. Right. So, uh, I, and from a user experience, I guess you can still go there if you're brave enough, right? If you're brave enough. Um, depending on what your browser is, you might actually get stopped before you get there. So you right. might, you know, like I said, Firefox will probably pop something up on your mm -hmm. web page. Usually it's a big red page that says this is a reported uh, attack website. Are you sure you want to go here? And they'll have like a proceed anyway mm -hmm. for, you know, if you're really crazy and you, you know, you, you, right. you don't believe them or whatever. Um, like I said, the Google search results will show some things there. If you're using Internet Explorer, it might actually have something in there too. Uh, I think they have some some interaction with that as well, mm -hmm. but I, I'd have to check. Other browsers like Opera, I would think Chrome probably is using the same safe browsing uh, type stuff that Google mm -hmm. has in you know, is because they're you know Google and Chrome are the same. Right. But depending on your browser, you may or may not get stopped before you get there. Mm -hmm. um, some of the safe things to do if you do use Firefox, uh, you might want to enable or install the NoScript plugin, which disables all JavaScript because the only way you'd be able right. to get compromised here is via JavaScript, as far as we're aware mm -hmm. uh, currently. Um, yeah, that's the basic gist. Really, yeah. What, the the one problem with that is that uh, a lot of WordPress sites, you know, use a lot of JavaScript. Mm -hmm. So if you have NoScript insta installed, but you you know regularly go browse to these WordPress sites, you're probably going to have turned JavaScript on for that site because it's difficult to you know, get the user experience or to administer them. Mm -hmm. So you likely have turned it all on already for that site. So once it gets infected, you're probably going to get infected anyway. That's yeah. a really good point. Yeah, yeah, that is a good point. So for anybody that's not familiar with uh, with uh, Darn it, I forgot. No script. Yeah, no script. <laughs> no script. <laughs> I'm a user, but I'm not really paying attention. In any case, uh, it's, it basically gives you control of what scripting you're that you allow use which in the browser, right? which, and the opportunity to control which websites you are willing to allow the, uh, the scripting capabilities on. So if you've whitelisted the site, it's basically as if you didn't have the no script on there. Right. right. While we're on the subject, another good tactic is use Sandboxy, Sandboxy which is yeah. another, another. Uh, kind of shareware, freeware, um, although uh, you can pay for it to get rid of the nag screen, but uh, that's another really good option, uh, and you can mm -hmm. kind of leave your JavaScript on. I use Sandboxy because basically Sandbox is your browser experience. Mm -hmm. It's very hard, unless they have a specific Sandboxy exploit, to get out of that Sandbox, yep. uh, which is rare you know, for them to know that you're using sandbox yeah. and try to and there are again. you know there are other products that do these uh, these yes. kinds of things but uh these happen to be ones that we have a little bit of a personal experience right. with i would call it yeah all right very good yeah and one of the, one yeah. of the things that i would highlight here is that you know if you administer a wordpress site you need to be going in there fairly regularly and checking whether there are updates for your plugins use the plugins through the wordpress.org plugin site and make sure you update those on a fairly regular basis because this has been updated for a while, but there are a lot of sites out there that didn't have it. And if you installed it through any other you know, third-party site where it didn't show the update in your little update panel of your WordPress admin, um, you know, then you got caught. Absolutely. You know, I think that's one of the uh, very important aspects of any cloud service that you're using that is to make sure you you know, taking a little time to understand what your responsibilities are from a security standpoint versus what the provider's responsibilities are from a standpoint. And it could be as simple as a username and password, but as you point out, Jim, if you're adding, 
you know, widgets or applications on top of that service, uh, it becomes something that is most likely your responsibility. And sometimes even what the uh, cloud service provider is providing may become your responsibility to some extent. So if you're just getting, you know, basically uh, bare metal as your, as your service, then uh, you will have the responsibilities for the operating system and patches associated with that. And even if you're getting just a, basically an operating system or you know, a compute as a service, uh, that operating system may not get patched until you ask them to actually do it because they don't want to disrupt your application. So a very important aspect of any cloud service subscription is to understand what your responsibilities are and what things are going to be done and uh, to, to make sure that that stays in a secure state or gets into a secure state in the first place for that matter. And stays there. I was going to say, I realize this is a story about a, a vulnerability in a, a WordPress plugin, but I would actually recommend one plugin, and it actually, it's Security's own site check. I mean, I've used it on several sites before, mm. and it's, it's useful. It'll let you know when certain things are happening. If there's a brute force attack against your usernames, mm. it's helpful. All right. Very good. Thanks, Matt. So, uh, Jim, let's go to you. And um, I guess, John, I don't know, do you describe that, that the, uh, the WordPress thing? Is that a worm, or is it really just uh, they're going out and scanning and compromising uh, the site? I don't think, yeah, as far as I'm aware, it's not worming. Yeah, like, not once worming. they compromise a machine, it's not trying to find others. It's more, right. as far as I know, one actor, yeah. a we small set of actors. We actually don't see that many worms anymore. It's usually a, uh, you know, they're getting them under a central control botnet and then commanding them to do things that it may be a recruiting activity. And so, uh, Jim, I'll... I'll pass it over to you here and uh, maybe you can tell us about uh, some of this backdoor activity. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, this one um, came to our attention over at the Internet Storm Center uh, last Thursday or Friday. Johannes Ulrich posted a handler's diary about it. Yeah, we talked about shell shock when it first happened several months ago. Um, I don't know, when was that? It, it's September, October, somewhere in there. Mm -hmm. One of the things that we talked about at the time was, you know, that it's quite possible that there are, you know, these appliances out there that might be vulnerable. And um, and that's what we have discovered. The reader sent in an email uh, saying he had noticed some stuff and Johannes did some some more investigation. And it turns out that uh, it looks like somebody has uh, created a, a shellshock worm that is looking for uh, unpatched versions of the uh, of a particular network storage device. It's QNAP NAS devices that they have Bash in, uh, installed on them, and there has been a patch out since uh, October, I believe, sometime. But uh, if the administrators uh, left them configured and unpatched, you know, and configured to have network access, this somebody out there created a, a worm that is going around looking for these, exploiting the particular auth login.cgi script, setting setting DNS the DNS server to. Uh, one of Google's public DNS servers. Mm -hmm. um, the thought is perhaps they're trying to get something that's a more uh, complete recursive DNS server, and/or trying to avoid logging. You know, if you're using your own DNS server, you wouldn't get these queries logged. 
whatever. It installs an SSH server on port 26. It creates a new admin user. Mm -hmm. It modifies the auto run script so that it survives a reboot. It uh, puts some malicious CGI's on there. And then it downloads QNAP's patch for the Shellshock vulnerability, applies it, reboots it so that you know nobody else can get in using the same exploit behind them. And then it uh, it appears that the primary purpose once they've you know spread to all the QNAP uh, NAS servers they can find, it looks like primarily they're doing um, click fraud to a particular advertisement network, uh, Juice ADV, um, and they have a particular user ID and refer. So I I suspect that the folks at the advertising network aren't going to, you know, it's not going to be successful in getting money for the bad guys anymore because they're already aware of what they're trying to do. Mm -hmm. But it, it, it was kind of interesting, you know, that is, we kind of thought maybe somebody would try to, to worm this vulnerability, uh, you know, create an exploit that could be used as a worm to propagate from device to device. And here we are a couple months after the, you know, the initial push and there are still unpatched devices out there and somebody's finally actually created a worm out of it. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, this is a classic example of the Internet of Things that are being connected or managed in a, a, a I'll call it less than acceptable way. <laughs> and Yeah, uh, well, I, I, we talked about it at the time. You know, yeah. there's so many of these devices out there. I mean, we talk about it all the time. Uh, you know, these devices that are not necessarily well managed or folks don't know mm -hmm. when you know, when there are patches available for them and don't necessarily apply them in a, you know, a timely fashion. And, you know, this is just another one of those devices. Yeah. How many people know that their NAS device runs Linux and Bash on the backside right. and needs to be updated? Right. right. Absolutely. Well, and, and I, I'd venture to guess, you know, you mentioned earlier, if we're speculating a little bit about the reason they configured the DNS to point toward, um, you know, Google's DNS servers. Uh, I'd venture to guess that for the most part, devices like this that have been exposed to the internet are probably not being managed particularly well, may not have even had any DNS server configured on them. And uh, they may be just simply doing that as a matter of simplicity rather than checking to see if it has good DNS. Just go and, you know, configure it the way you want. Uh, but your point... Yeah, I, your, one of the other articles... Um, that after after Johannes posted it, it got picked up in some of the other press, and one of the other articles speculated that um, that they have some sort of a built-in DNS set of DNS servers they go mm. to that is not complete, and so you know maybe to get to places they wanted, maybe that's why they were setting this, but it's it's not entirely clear yet. Okay, well, nevertheless. Uh, good story. I think that uh, kind of, you know, is another classic example of this uh, devices being connected and uh, really need to be prepared a little bit better to be connected to the Internet. And uh, I guess, you know, how, are there really reasons that network attached storage needs to be exposed to the Internet? I'm, I'm not really sure, <laughs> sure about that. Now, I guess uh, for folks that 
need to try to detect this. They may not even be aware of these devices on their enterprise network. I guess that you could sort of scan on port 26. There aren't going to be too many other services there, I would expect, right? Yeah, well, that, that would be one way to look for SSH servers on port 26. Um, or, you know, you can look for the, the particular um, CGI script on the web interface. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, several ways of looking for it, absolutely. Yeah. Because, you know, ultimately there is the potential of this, but if this really is warming, it could potentially uh, spread into an enterprise network and have that, mm -hmm. uh, you know, in, uh, affect an enterprise network as well. So, all right, thank you, Jim, very good. Uh, and let's go over to uh, Matt here. Now, I think you have a completely different slant on the on the security posture of devices here. I do. Uh, <laughs> this is a case in where something functioned exactly as expected and you know, correctly in a, in a sense, yeah. uh, that caused a lot of heartache. Uh, a company called Hypercom, which is now part of a different company, which is Equinox, mm -hmm. both uh, payment processing device manufacturers. Hypercom made a device back in 2004 um, using cryptographic um, signatures, uh, a certificate uh, within the device to ensure that, you know, everything was secure. Mm -hmm. December 7th of this year, these devices all simultaneously refused to boot up after they'd been power cycled. Now, what appears happens here is uh, Hypercom had put in a certificate to expire in 10 years. Mm. And this is typically a very good practice. I mean, you want your certificates to be able to you know, expire after a certain amount of time so that someone can't use them, uh, hijack them at some point in the future. You know, it, mm -hmm. it sort of limits the amount of abuse that's, that's possible in a case where they get stolen. Yeah. Um, but in this case, it seems that no one at uh, Hypercom, or in this case Equinox, which had purchased Hypercom, knew about this, this impending failure. And mm -hmm. so as a result, a number of, of retailers that were using these devices, you know, powered cycled their devices on December 7th, and they were out of business, completely out of commission. Yeah, that hurts. Uh, it's their own little version of Pearl Harbor. Especially Day. this time of year, huh? <laughs> right? December 7th. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Unfortunate <laughs> choice of day, absolutely. Unfortunate, yeah. Um, it seems that Equinox is trying to get people uh, up to date again, hopefully and help them install a new certi certificate. Mm -hmm. um, an interesting fact that was in this article, and this is from Krebs on Security, is that at least one of the models in this case is actually no longer permitted to be used in the US because of the PCI requirements. Mm. There's some aspect of it that's no longer legit. So it right, seems like right. potentially meet the PCI requirement. Okay. some of these devices should really be taken out of commission. You know, mm -hmm. I, it's not clear which models exactly are in this, in this situation, but uh, yeah. Um, and it's, it's interesting, they, they, one of the, the affected vendors who was using the devices mentioned that at some point um, this business division moved from Hypercom to Equinox mm -hmm. to over to Verifone, which some people are probably familiar with, and back and forth. And I think it's that it's the churn, it's that non-continuity between the people involved mm -hmm. that probably led to the fact that somewhere along the line they forgot that this was an a impending problem. Right, right. You know, uh, I, I, I don't even know where to start on this one. <laughs> uh, it, it, I guess the oversight was, this, this kind of gets me on a little bit of a tangent here, that, you know, I, I, at root, I'm, I've been working in security for a long time, but at root, I'm really sort of a systems engineer. And uh, it's been kind of my opinion for a long time that requirements documents are really not something that somebody creates to create a system. It's something that somebody creates because of mistakes that have been made in the past. Mm -hmm. And so in the requirements for a system like that, really what you want is something that posts a warning. 
It right. says in the next 90 days your certificate's going to expire, you better do something about it. And uh, it was certainly something that uh, when I had been working on public key uh, cryptography projects in the past, we did exactly that, provided some sort of a warning, and I think there was a 90-day warning or a 60-day warning or something to say, you know, your key's going to expire. If you don't rekey it, the thing's going to shut down. Right. And uh, so that's, I guess, one aspect of this that we uh, kind of need to keep in mind. And for, incidentally, for folks that might not be familiar, uh, PCI is a payment card industry standards that is contrary to what you may have thought, if you're not already familiar, there are standards around the security for payment card systems, that is the use of credit cards and what uh, you know, the retailers have to satisfy, and there are audit practices around that as well. Uh, but that again, if you read the requirements in the PCI standards, you can probably map most of the requirements, especially if you could have a timestamp for when those you know, requirements were introduced, you could say, oh yeah, that was that breach. <laughs> and oh yeah, there was that breach. In fact, one of the uh, requirements I think has a lot to do with uh, Wi-Fi security. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you remember back, one of the biggest breaches, the uh, examples that TJ took Max. place about uh, TJ yep. Maxx, uh, mm -hmm. had to do with accessibility of the Wi-Fi environment and the P uh, point of sale systems being a part of that Wi-Fi network and being able to, uh, to basically bill for the data. Yep. So uh, and. In any case, <laughs> if you ever get a chance to look at a requirements document or standards, it's actually kind of interesting to go through and see if you can figure out uh, where those requirements fundamentally came from. Because usually it has to do with some uh, perhaps not so good experience associated with those systems. <laughs> yeah, if you get, but, you get burned, you'll learn. Yeah. yeah. One more thing I wanted to mention is that um, when this initial failure happened, and it did happen across the board, the initial suspicion was that there was some sort of hack attack involved. Mm. I mean, these things were power cycled off, power cycled back on, mm -hmm. and they did nothing. The screen didn't turn on, it was just blank. Yeah. Um, Understandable under the circumstances. Uh, I think uh, a lot of folks in the payment card industry, you know, with payment systems and things, particularly if they have perhaps an older one, mm -hmm. uh, would be on pins and needles about what the, uh, or should be on the pins and needles. time of the year, oh. you know? Yeah, absolutely. Right? You would think that people, especially with the whole, was it Target last year, Christmas yeah, yeah. time, Christmas you time. know, had their, mm -hmm. you know, people get all, kind of their awareness is elevated, thinking that there might be some sort of hacker Absolutely. you know, yep. impact. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm actually surprised. I mean, and I guess this is a part of the, uh, maybe an attribute of the in increasing sophistication of malware. You know, if you recall back, not just, not too many years ago, a lot of the malware, when it, you know, a machine got infected, it would do com some crazy thing, like, you know, it would go to a blue screen and you had to reboot it or something crazy like that. You don't see too much of that anymore. A lot of times the infections are relatively silent, uh, comparatively speaking. I think uh, I'm actually a little bit surprised that we don't see more malware incidents that just brick computers. Mm -hmm. And uh, brick being, you know, basically turn it into just a piece of junk. Well, let's <laughs> you know, hope we don't. Wipe something, well, we're not, obviously <laughs> aren't looking for it to do that. But um, that would be a legitimate possibility, especially in a, an embedded system where you may have lots of different versions of the uh, of the embedded system, which uh, with subtle differences that you know they thought they had a piece of malware they could infect you know point of sale devices, and then the next you know they've turned a bunch of them into, into bricks. unbootable bricks. So yeah. it, it's actually uh, perhaps a good sign that they were considering the fact that it could have been a hack attack, but uh, then again, it, there's always that possibility is just a failure to operate. <laughs> All right, good story there, Matt. I think that's a uh, 
uh, actually a very interesting one. So uh, let's take a look at the weather for the last uh, week or so here. That is the internet weather. And in particular, uh, very strong similarities to last week. In fact, very much in the same uh, order as well. Uh, the first one here is scan probes on port 1434 UDP. This is a Microsoft SQL database. And uh, key word here being that's on uh, protocol UDP, that is uh, user datagram protocol. In this particular case, what we're seeing is uh, continued probing activity on that port. In addition to that probing activity, I want to point out a specific thing that we did not talk about last week, and this is a relatively new development. You can see here where the number of packets in the probing activity relative to the number of probes has diverged. That is generally, you know, if we look back in time here, there's a very close correlation between the number of packets and the number of probes. Uh, what we're seeing here is a strong diversion from that. And that's really a very strong suggestion that it's something other than probing activity. And sure enough, what we're seeing here is that uh, port 1434 UDP is being used in distributed reflective denial service attacks. That is, uh, they're scanning out, looking for databases that have this port exposed to the internet, and then uh, reflecting attacks off of those using a spoof source address in the packet, and then having that response go to the, uh, the target of attack. So if you see this probing activity against your database, it may not, in fact, be, uh, particularly if you see lots of probes uh, from the same source address, it's most likely uh, that database is being used to uh, facilitate an attack. It could have an impact on the performance of the system. I'm really not even sure that there is a uh, significant amplification effect associated with this, but it does provide some opportunity for the attackers to hide a little bit more. Uh, and then, you know, uh, obviously uh, they have some uh, uh, motivation to uh, hide where the attack is actually coming from. Uh, I guess the other thing I'll point out here is the uh, size of the attacks that we're seeing so far are relatively small, but that is not unusual in the early phases of using uh, new ports for attacks of this type. And we have not seen uh, this port used in this type of attack in the past, but because it's UDP uh, and is not uh, basically requiring an acknowledged connection, it, uh, it does facilitate uh, performing this sort of reflective attack. So we'll have to see if there are uh, uh, if this increases over time or if it's uh, uh, sort of a passing phase. Next item here is scan probes on port 7001 TCP. Again, we reported on this last week. Uh, just a little bit of a different flavor in reporting at this time. I'm looking at 60 days worth of data here, and uh, you can see that it's been fairly regular activity, and it turns out that this specific IP address, that is, there's a single address from China that's doing a lot of this probing activity. It is also probing on a number of other ports. Uh, 110, 1433, 1521, 1723, 3128, 3306, 7001, as we noted, and uh, 8081. So this basically equates to email, databases, proxies, and I guess 1723, if I remember correctly, is a, uh, associated with a um, uh, multimedia protocol. Yeah, H323 or H323, something. H323, yes, yeah. I think that's exactly right. So. Uh, and as I said, uh, fairly consistent activity since about mid-November and uh, basically attributable to one source that's doing that activity. So uh, you can imagine what uh, types of things they might be uh, uh, trying to uh, do with that information. Now similarly, I think I had these bunched together last week uh, with another address. Uh, there's another source that's uh, basically showed up on our radar is probing on port 32764 TCP. Again, the majority of those probes are from a single source, and this one's scanning on sort of a different group of 
uh, ports, uh, port 5800, port 5900, uh, 7001 as we noted uh, earlier, 8009, 8090, 8088, 11211 and 32764. Was that I reported that that back door was on port 53413 TCP, while well, in fact that port is on uh, that back door port is 5314 UDP, and uh, there's a reference here to the article that uh, that describes that that was discovered by uh, Trend Micro. But nevertheless, uh, we have been tracking activity on both TCP and UDP, and uh, reporting on the UDP activity, and now we have a clear explanation as to why uh, it's showing up on UDP. So. On the, uh, what we're looking here are actually the number of source addresses they're probing on port uh, 53413 UDP. And uh, back uh, around November 11th, we saw sort of a big increase in the number of sources, telltale sign of a botnet that's doing the scanning activity and sort of the trailing uh, or die off or uh, a decay of activity uh, as those uh, source addresses are completing their task. Uh, we're in the third phase of that activity, actually on the tail end of the third phase of the activity. As of, uh, well, I guess around the uh, 9th of December, we saw the beginning of that third phase when we just reported last week, and then uh, it's tailed off, and we're kind of down to that baseline level in terms of uh, probing activity or sources of that probing activity. And the thing I will also point out here is that each time they've increase the number of sources that are doing the uh, scanning activities, which suggests that they are being uh, more successful recruiting more into the, uh, the botnet. Now, the number of sources that we see here does not necessarily indicate the size of the botnet. It just means that they've dedicated that portion toward uh, the probing activity or recruiting activity, whereas they may have other portions that are being used in uh, denial service attacks, for example. Right, John? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, uh, we have seen some denial of service attacks that we believe are, are attributable to uh, these types of devices as well as other internet connected devices that are being exploited, uh, at the very least used in attack activity, if not uh, a part of a botnet. Yeah. And just to give you, uh, this is the exact same graph that I showed last week just uh, for uh, uh, another reference, the uh, distribution of the sources associated with that, sort of that peak point in the third phase. And uh, these devices, uh, they are Chinese-made uh, device. They seem to be much more popular in uh, China and uh, Asia-Pacific region, Europe, not as much in the United States, uh, but they certainly are available uh, domestically as well. Uh, looking at the top 10 most probed ports, uh, port 135 is at the top of the list. We reported on this last week and uh, have had uh, a number of discussions about it, so I won't repeat that today, but if you're interested in uh, an explanation on that top item on the list, uh, go ahead and refer to last week's uh, program. Uh, next on the list is port 8080 TCP. I'm looking for open proxies uh, for a, a variety of apparent reasons to anonymize activity or perhaps even to gain access to, uh, to systems. 
uh, followed by port 22 and port 23, oftentimes brute force password guessing, trying to get access to command line on systems that are exposed to the internet, oftentimes associated with um, you know, internet connected devices that have telnet service exposed and uh, you may not have even known about it. Uh, sometimes it's not even documented. Yeah, it's a lot of uh, home routers that for whatever reason, they got telnet listening mm -hmm. and open and exposed to the internet. Yeah, there, well, Especially a lot of these in devices, countries other than the U.S. too. Yeah. I don't know why, but <laughs> well, a lot of these devices they're using a uh, they're being developed on in, uh, a, a basically an embedded processor system emulation platform, and that's the base configuration, and they get it out the door without uh, doing the proper security lockdown associated with those devices. So, uh, you know, odd as this may seem, even for consumers, we kind of need to get into this mode where you're actually scanning your own network to see. Uh, <laughs> what vulnerabilities might exist. Yeah. Uh, next item is port 53 UDP. Oftentimes looking for uh, DNS servers that can be used in uh, open DNS resolvers, that is, that uh, could be used in uh, reflection attacks. Uh, followed by port 80 TCP and 443 TCP, looking for those, uh, for those web servers. Port 445 and then port 1433 TCP. Now this is a little different than the 1434 TCP or UDP that we were discussing earlier. Uh, but again, looking for uh, Microsoft SQL database servers that might be exposed to the internet um, and uh, could possibly have that UDP port exposed as well. Looking at the most sources doing the probing, uh, at the top of the list in terms of uh, actual services, port 23 TCP, we talked about these uh, internet of things. I noticed that um, not uh, too long ago for a, actually there was a significant amount, in fact I probably should have uh, included it as a graph here, but uh, uh, really a significant number of sources doing scanning activity on port 23 TCP. It, it's actually tailed off a little bit uh, since this uh, chart was growing, otherwise I think it would have been at the top of the list. Uh, followed by port 445 TCP, that's uh, configure infections, uh, port 6881 which is associated with BitTorrent and other uh, uh, PDP activity as well as uh, 27015, I think that's associated with some uh, gaming activity, and then some ICM port, P ports here. Uh, then followed by 3389 TCP, which is a remote desktop protocol. We hadn't looked at that one for a little while, so I decided to take a uh, little closer look at it. Uh, we're looking at the last 180 days of activity here, uh, and this is looking at the number of sources that are doing the probing on this port. And uh, as you can see, back in July timeframe, we saw a, uh, an increase, clearly botnet activity, where we went from you know, roughly 1,000 up to a little over 2,000 sources doing the scanning activity on this port. Uh, that eventually dropped off, and then we've seen sort of an upward trend since then. So it appears that there may be some recruiting activity that's going on, uh, another little uh, sort of bump in activity, and then another jump up. It's actually uh, similar in size to what we saw back in July. Uh, this was actually around mid-November that we saw this, and it's stayed pretty stable since then, if not uh, a little bit of a subtle increase. So the general trend here for port 3389 is that we're seeing more and more sources uh, probing on this port over time, and it did uh, bump up a couple of slots uh, in our ranking. So uh, something you may want to pay attention to. You know, remote desktop uh, is a, uh, it, you want to have, at the very least, very good authentication for access to any remote desktop services, whether you're using RDP or another service to uh, facilitate that. Uh, I know a lot of folks that are telecommuting, you want to be able to make sure that uh, they can get access to uh, enterprise services from remotely, but you need to do a good job with that security because there are 
uh, a lot of activities to target that kind of capability. There's a lot of push lately for people to move to these virtual hosted desktop type mm -hmm. platforms. A lot of those use RDP. Uh, yep. So they need to be on the internet, but like you said, you need really good authentication. So I think there's a, probably a higher density over the past couple of years mm -hmm. of RDP devices out there on the internet listing yeah, than absolutely. there used to I would be. expect that. And uh, just to give you a look at the sources they're doing that probing activity, uh, there's a pretty good density of that in the United States, uh, even relative to Europe and, uh, and Asia, which is suggesting that uh, you know, the conversation we just had, the, uh, the density of those devices and actually vulnerable devices that may be uh, not only, you know, potentially uh, exploited, but uh, subsequently contributing to the, uh, the probing activity. So that's our show for today. I'd like to thank you for joining us. And if you'd like to get in touch with us, uh, we certainly would like to hear from you. You can e email us at threattrack at list.att.com. And you can find ThreatTrack on the ATT Tech Channel. It's att.com slash ThreatTrack. It's on YouTube as well as on iTunes if you uh, prefer that path. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at ATT Security. I'd like to thank you, Jim. Thanks for joining today. Matt, John, I'm Brian Rexrode, and we'll be back next week with a, uh, with a new episode. And until then, keep your network safe. Views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.